Welcome, Utah skiers and riders, to Last Chair. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. I just love that opening tune from Utah's own Pixie and the Partygrass Boys. A big shout out to High West, Utah's first legal distillery since 1870. Passionate about crafting delicious and distinctive whiskeys and helping people appreciate whiskey all in the context of our home right here in the American West. When you're in town, visit one of High West's locations in Park City and nearby Wanship, where you can actually tour the distillery. We're also joined on this episode by Level 9 Sports, with four locations along the Wasatch Front, including its fabulous newly renovated shop in downtown Salt Lake City. And a big welcome back to Jan's Mountain Outfitters and White Pine Touring, your go-to shop for year-round recreation or guided adventures. Stop by Jan's store in Park City or visit jans.com to learn more. Jan's your mountain recreation experts. As we head into February here in Utah, the mountains remain in great shape. I've been out quite a bit lately, and it has been a blast. Personally, though, I'm getting pumped to tune into NBC and Peacock to watch the Olympic Winter Games from Beijing this month, starting on Friday, February 4th. A little trivia fact for you. Did you know that a full third of Team USA lives and trains right here in Utah? That's right. If Utah were actually a team, it would be among the larger nations in the games. It's also an important anniversary for us here in Utah. On February 8th, we'll celebrate the 20 years since we welcomed the world to Salt Lake City for the Olympic Winter Games. It was a time of great pride for our state. Today, we're going to take a step back in time and revisit the 2002 Olympics with Fraser Bullock, who served as chief operating officer back then and is now heading efforts to bring the games back to Utah as early as 2030. It's a fun interview sharing memories and looking forward to what's possible in our future. So before you switch to NBC's nightly coverage from Beijing, take a listen as Fraser Bullock takes us back in time and then fast forward to the future here on Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. Well, the International Olympic Committee has decided to award the organization of the 19th Olympic Winter Games in 2002 to the city of Salt Lake City. And those were the words of International Olympic Committee President Juan Antonio Samaranch in 1995 in Budapest as he proclaimed Salt Lake City as the site of the 2002 Olympic Winter Games. And joining us now is the Chief Operating Officer from 2002 and also the President and CEO of the future America's Choice Bid, Fraser Bullock. And Fraser, thanks for joining us on Last Chair. So great to be with you, Tom. Now, before we get into the Olympics, we got to talk skiing. I mean, it was a skiing podcast, and I think a lot of folks may not know this about you. I think you're a pretty familiar figure, but you are a diehard skier. Absolutely. My favorite sport, being on top of a mountain, looking at the beautiful views and just letting it fly down the slope, doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more later about where you love to ski, but it is a great sport. And actually, 
just one more question on skiing. When did you get into skiing? Is that something that you've done the whole time you've lived here in Utah? I started skiing when I was 12 years old, which is 1967. So that's a long time ago. Well, it's it's not that long ago. So, well, it is great to have you here. And we're going to talk about the 2002 Olympics. It is the 20th anniversary coming up on February 8th. 20 years since the Games visited our great state. But we also are going to take a look ahead to 2030 and the future and trying to bring those games back to America. But to start it off, Fraser, give us a little bit of background about where you've come from and how you ended up in this role back in 2002. Sure. I received my education at Brigham Young University with an MBA and went back to work in Boston with Mitt Romney at Bain & Company. And then when he started Bain Capital in 1984, I joined him there. So we had the opportunity to collaborate somewhat. I then went elsewhere to do other career pursuits. But then when Mitt was selected as the new CEO in early 1999, he reached out to me as somebody who could be his COO. And when he asked me, I said, absolutely not. Because I knew how challenging the situation was and the difficulties that were being faced, but he twisted my arm, and it's the best thing that ever happened to me was joining that. Other than marrying my wife, it was just absolutely fabulous. It is interesting to look back at decisions that you make in life and think about your mindset at the time, and and, and I imagine that every day you work on this great program and you work with sports, you think back to that decision and say, glad it went that way and glad I went to 2002. Absolutely, because the Olympics becomes part of you. It becomes part of your DNA. The Olympic spirit infuses your body with enthusiasm because the cause is so great. You really are a unique unifying force for the world when you host a Games. Under the umbrella of sport, we see these amazing athletes achieve the best in their respective sports and we bring the world together to celebrate that, it's so unique and so valuable. So I feel blessed the day I was pulled into the Olympic movement. Before that day, did you have any connectivity to the Olympics? Were you a fan of the Olympics? Had you followed the Olympics when you were a child? Well, I like to call myself in the world of sports, jack of all trades, but master of none. So I love sports. I followed the Olympics just as a regular citizen. I did attend the 1996 games in Atlanta. But other than that, I was just an innocent bystander until I got pulled in. Now, I know when you came in, when Mitt Romney, now the senator from the state of Utah, but when he pulled you in and you joined the organization, I know you had a lot of challenges. There were some difficulties in putting things together, but did you pretty quickly realize the scope of what you were involved with and really the depth and the emotion of what the Olympics mean? It took a while for me to realize the scope because I've been in so many businesses and there's typically six, seven, eight functions, sales, marketing, manufacturing. The Olympics has 42. And just one example of that is the transportation system, which has five subsystems, 5,000 vehicles, and that's one function out of 42. So I quickly came to realize the scope But then also the challenges we initially faced because sponsors were not supporting us enthusiastically, to say the least. There was a Justice Department investigation. There are all kinds of things going on that impeded us from 
going super fast that we had to address simultaneously with putting the plans together, building confidence, getting the sponsors back. But the scope was something I didn't imagine, but then learned very quickly what I was in for. With any organization, any company, you're really only as strong as the team that you put together. And you were putting out fires at the start, but you're also looking ahead to the games. You had to put together a team of people, not a small team, a pretty large team of people to put these games on here in Utah. Yes. When I first started, the team was 220 people. And there were some really, really capable people that were there already. But we needed to grow to 50,000 at games time, including volunteers and contractors. One of the things that I have realized during my career, it's all about the team. You have to have incredible capability. You have to have a team orientation of working well together. You have to have unity. And what I did was I went around the world to find the best people for the team. I went to the Sydney Games and hired some people down there because their games were just ending. I hired people from Atlanta, various other sport events, and other countries as well. We assembled, in my opinion, the best Olympic organizing team in history. And I think people don't often think about the fact that your team isn't just just people from the community. It's a lot of community people, but it really is an international team. You have different nationalities, different languages, all coming together with their expertise. It really is because you need experts in discipline, discipline areas like Accreditation is a very complex function, and we hired two people, one was an American, one was international, that knew accreditation better than anybody else in the world. Your general managers for your venues, that's a huge job and one of the most important jobs. And we hired people from Australia, from all over, because they could have their expertise. And here was my philosophy in the 42 functions. I wanted one person at least one person with significant Olympic experience in that function to just make sure we knew what we were about and weren't missing anything. When you look at the things that you did with these games, certainly the 17 days of the games, that's what the world sees, but there was a lot more beyond that. And I want to go to the torch relay, just as an example. The torch relay is one of these things that really does bring people together around the state, around the world, really. That's a big organizational task that was overlaid on what you were already doing to prepare for the games that February. Yes, and by the way, I'm glad you brought up the torch relay. It's one of my most cherished memories ever, but we had a completely separate organization that did a great job, and we outsourced a lot of it to Alem, and they did just fabulous work on it. It was a partnership, but the logistics of starting out in Greece and then bringing it back to the U.S. and going to 46 states and having speeches and 12,400 torch runners was incredible. But I remember being the head of the torch relay. I said, Fraser, you've got to go on the torch relay. I said, I can't. I'm too busy. I'm going to put on the games. He said, you've got to go. So I went just a few days before Christmas, and I was able to go to Philadelphia. And this is right after 9-11 and Washington, D.C., and then New York, all very significantly impacted by 9-11. 
And as we would go down the streets and see thousands of people gathering and cheering us on, and we'd pass by a firefighter station and just thank them for their service, but then going to the White House and being there with President Bush and then up to New York and having the torch run through Manhattan with tens of thousands of people is something I'll never forget. It has been 20 years since 9-11 now, and it's an oft-forgotten point that that was an event that certainly changed our country, but it almost halted the games. It did. I remember the morning of 9-11, as I was driving into work pretty early, I heard on the radio the impact of the first jet hitting the Twin Towers. There was a lot of speculation, uncertainty, and I got into the office, and the first thing I did was call Mitt. And he was just passing, he had just passed the Pentagon after it had been hit in a car because he's back raising money for security. And we talked that day about the importance of hosting the games, of going forward. We contacted the IOC to make sure that they were supportive of going forward because we recognized that our games had just taken on different meaning of having the opportunity for some healing and unifying the world after this horrific tragedy. I think back on it now, and I know the challenges that you went through, but ultimately the games did go on, albeit with maybe another layer or two of security. Some of my best friends became the Secret Service, the FBI, the military, local law enforcement, where we reviewed our security plan post 9-11, and we found it was already very solid, but we added some additional dimensions just to ensure security. And most of it was aviation-related, given the impact of 9-11, and we had really safe and secure games. It set some precedents, I think, too, with security. The systems that were employed in Salt Lake City carried on to future games. Yes, and one of the things we had was what we call an air cap, which is a combat air patrol, where we made sure we had aviation assets in the air 24-7 during the Olympic period. But then also, we put together a lot of procedures and protocols for venue entry, uh, perimeter security that have gone on to serve well for future games. Let's talk about your team. One of the things that has struck me over time is how close-knit that team was in 2002 and how they have remained close together. Friendships were formed. Professional relationships were formed. It's like a family, isn't it? It really is. And you have an environment where you're doing good for the world, so the cause is noble. And if you're able to assemble a team that is selfless, that will work together through thick and thin and trust each other and have a high capability, then you come together in a very unique way. And what's interesting about this is when I talk to Mid and Ann, about their experiences of running for president or anything else. They said there was nothing like the games. That was absolutely the pinnacles of their career and my career. And it's a lot about the people. And I remember seeing Beth White, who ran the um, main media center for us, the Salt Palace. And I saw her at subsequent games. And she would come out and say, there was nothing like Salt Lake 2002. The camaraderie, the capability, the success has never been duplicated, and we all recognize we had something very special. 
Games can have the greatest staff ever, but ultimately it does come down to a huge volunteer base. And Utah is is, is great in this, in this regard, but you mobilized huge numbers of really passionate volunteers. Yes, we needed 24,000 volunteers and we got applications from 65,000 people. And we ran an ad that said, hey, want to volunteer for the games? No pay, hard work, long hours, better hurry. But you got a coat. (laughs) That's right. You got a coat. So we had a tremendous workforce of volunteers. And I would say that there are two things that came out of them. Number one, friendliness. I would get comment after comment from our international visitors, how wonderful our volunteers were, how so helpful and kind they were. And the second thing is their staying power. In Atlanta, the attrition rate was 17%, which is not unusual for a games. Our games was less than one half of 1%. They were committed. They loved it. And when I see people who had volunteered, when I see them today, they said, oh, that was so special. I just loved every minute of it. They wear their coats still. And actually, it's a reason to get another games here because we need to freshen their coats a little bit. But but it, it, I think it is something, though, that is inherent in Utah. It's a part of our nature here as a state. It's our culture. Yeah, it really is our secret sauce of, of how our games became seen as so special is because of the people we have here, the welcoming attitude, the friendliness, the hard work. It is a state of volunteerism and helping And we just tapped into that potential and magnified it and showed it to the world. So as we speak right now, Team USA is heading to Beijing. Many of them are already there. The games are coming up with the opening ceremonies on Friday, February 4th. But at the same time, lots of activities are going on back here in Salt Lake City to commemorate the 20th anniversary. And help me on this, Fraser, but February 8th is the anniversary of the actual opening ceremony, right? Yes. February 8th was a magical day back in 2002 where we lit the cauldron for the first time and had a marvelous celebration. And here we are 20 years later. It's hard to comprehend, but we need to commemorate that special moment. So we will light the cauldron again for several days, but we'll light it on February 8th. If folks have not been out to the Cauldron Plaza, which was dedicated this fall, it really is an amazing place. It's right outside of Rice Eccles Stadium. You can go down there any day. It's a free attraction, but there's been some great work put into this to really chronicle the timeline, to celebrate some of the athlete victories. Yeah, it's beautiful because you have at the center of it this beautiful cauldron and waterfalls on the side of it. Then around the perimeter, you have the story of the games. You have the story of the athletes, all the athletes are listed there, the medal winners, but then you have the story of putting on the games and what it was like and the people involved there. You really can immerse yourself into the time of 20 years ago, and I highly recommend it. There's also a variety of other celebrations going on in Salt Lake City and up in Park City. Are there any that you care to highlight? Well, probably beside the cauldron lighting is on Saturday, February 12th from 1 to 5, there's a celebration on Park City Main Street where we invite all those, wear your coats, whatever, and and gather. There'll be special commemoration there and some activities on Main Street. And we're just thrilled to use that day as a focus time where we can gather together. I'll be there. 
I'll be wearing one of my Olympic coats, so I hope to see many people there. You know, I am a little biased because I do live in Park City, but I remember back to that time and what a special place that was with the fire barrels down Main Street. I'm sure that was a big security (laughs) issue at the time, but it was such a global gathering spot, much as it was in downtown Salt Lake City. It was, and that's what the games are about. They really bring people together. And we love these, what we call live sites, like Park City Main Street. People would come there. They just want to hang out and be with people from 83 countries from around the world and get to know them, do some pin trading, other activities, and just be involved. And And we had Meadows Plaza downtown and what we called Salt Lake Olympic Square, which is a nine-block perimeter, where people could just be involved. Whether or not you had a ticket didn't matter. Just come and enjoy. So this does commemorate that feeling of a live site during a games. We're with Fraser Bullock, the Chief Operating Officer of the 2002 Olympic Winter Games. We're celebrating the 20th anniversary. And when we come back, we're going to talk more 2002 memories. We're going to talk about legacy. And we're going to look ahead to bringing the games back to America. We'll be right back on Last Chair. It's really fun to think back on those great 2002 Olympic memories. It is mid-season here in Utah, and that's a good time to think about what you still need to enhance your own ski or snowboard experience. I know I've been making a checklist lately. I definitely need some new goggles. You know, it really pays to visit a shop and talk to the experts when you're making choices, whether it's a new pair of skis or an upgrade to your goggles. You have a lot of choices in shops here in Utah. What I've grown to really love about Level 9 is its approach to families. I mean, let's face it. Outfitting your family with skis, boots, jackets, and more can be a daunting task. Level 9 recognizes that and has implemented programs to not only make the process easier, but also to help with the impact on your wallet. Have you visited the newly renovated Level 9 Sports in downtown Salt Lake City? It's less than a minute off the freeway from the new Salt Lake City International Airport. It is an amazing old historic building in an industrial area that's going through an incredible renaissance. If you're flying into Utah and you need to rent some skis or snowboards, it is a perfect choice with easy off and on access from I-15. It's a huge shop featuring a wide selection of skis and accessories. A big feature that really stood out to me was literally an entire mezzanine floor dedicated to boots and boot fitting. I had a fitting myself last season at the Level 9 store in Mill Creek, and I highly recommend it. Visit the website at level9sports.com. That's level9sports spelled out. Check out the Ski Learn Center and Teaching Children sections, a wealth of how-to videos that will help walk you through the process. You can find Level 9 Sports at four locations in Utah, including Orem, Mill Creek, the new store in downtown Salt Lake City, and also up in Ogden. Stop by and tell them you heard it on Last Chair. Now let's get back and talk some more Olympics with Fraser Bullock here on Last Chair. And we are back on Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. Today we're talking with Fraser Bullock, the Chief Operating Officer of the 2002 Olympic Winter Games held right here in Salt Lake City, Utah. And he is also the President and CEO of what we hope will be the future games coming back here to Utah as early as 2030. And I, I, I want to dive back into memories. We've, we've done a, a good overview of, 
of what took place here 20 years ago. But what are some of those really special memories for you? We, we did talk about the torch parade, but there, there was one that was, I, I think, really special to a lot of us, and that was the opening ceremony. Give us a little sense of what were those poignant moments for you back in 02? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you three. The first one is opening ceremonies, and I knew what was going to happen because I'd been part of putting together the plan and everything and all the rehearsals, but there was something magical about February 8th, and it became very special when the flag from the Twin Towers was brought in at the beginning of opening ceremonies, carried by athletes, and there was complete silence in the stands. It was so impactful. My heart felt like it was beating out of my chest, where we felt unified, not only as a country, but we had athletes from 83 countries being able to show their support for the families of the victims of that tragedy. That unifying element was something I can still visualize today and is really symbolic of what the Olympics does. It brings people together in a unified way. Fraser, how did you organize that? How did you conceive that idea and and actually get that flag here? Yes, well, it was escorted by the Port Authority of New York. We had our people in the communications area who were very adept at working and, and knew people in New York. We did have to get special permission from the IOC because it was an unusual flag ceremony because we have the normal flag and then we had this flag. And whenever you change protocol with the IOC, you have to get special permission and credit to Mitt. I mean, he made it happen, uh, worked through some of the issues because we all knew at the end, including the IOC, that this needed to happen. It was an amazing time. So what are what are some other points for so the So just opening? two sport ones. One is I can remember being at the men's snowboard half pipe. A gorgeous day, a beautiful venue, and Mitt and Ann were there with myself and my wife Jennifer, and we were right next to the half pipe. We, we did get special access. And I remember watching Ross Powers fly out of the half pipe so high, it just blew my mind. Being able to watch these Olympians perform at that level was just stunning. And then we swept the podium. The U.S. swept the podium. And so I had to go to Metals Plaza that night and celebrate, which was so great to see that event, which is so fun, so exciting, and USA sweep the podium. It was an iconic day of celebrating athletes. It really was. And I have my own story that day because I was actually at Snow Basin. It was the women's downhill. And the women's downhill ended up getting postponed. There was this thin band of fog about mid-course. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that might have been the only postponement in the games. So when that was postponed, I made a beeline over to Park City to watch the snowboard. And I walked into the venue and I looked at the scoreboard. I knew it was the last run. And I said, something must be wrong. Why why is it USA, USA, USA? I didn't quite understand it. And, you know, I I looked at the athletes and they're like in a trance, you know, that this was happening. And one other little side note, J.J. Thomas, who won the bronze medal that day, actually went on to become Sean White's coach. And he coached Sean in the 2018 Olympics back to a gold medal. So a lot of history was made that day. Oh, that's great. And we'll see Sean in Beijing here. We will see Sean in Beijing. So the legacy of 2002 continues on. One other experience that I have was the in the Paralympics, 
the men's gold medal sled hockey game was just unbelievable because this was a team that came from last place in Nagano to competing for a medal and then a gold medal against Norway. It was a tie game at the end of regulation. It went to two overtime periods, still tied, and then it went to a shootout, and the U.S. edged out Norway by one goal, and the place went delirious. It was absolutely packed, and I just thought of those athletes and all the work that they did, and buying ice time at 1 o'clock in the morning because they couldn't afford regular ice time, and living their dream, we saw the best of the Olympic and Paralympic spirit come forward through them. We haven't talked much about the Paralympics, but that is a an integral part of any games, the Olympics and then subsequently the Paralympics. It's really a different type of emotion when you go to those events and you see what these athletes have overcome with whatever their personal situation was, but then to overlay becoming Paralympic champions to really get into the athletic side of it. It's a different emotion. It is. And... We were the first organizing committee to ever put on both games. And I'm so grateful because the Paralympic Games gives you a whole different feel, as you mentioned, Tom. And I think of somebody like uh, Chris Waddell, who is one of my personal heroes and who is an able-bodied skier and had an accident and became a Paralympian. And I lost count in terms of, I think it's like 17 medals, summer and winter. But he was a star at our games. I think he won five medals at our games. I think three of them were gold. And you meet Chris, and he is just an example of the best of humanity. Just a wonderful human being that's always caring about other people and has utilized his disability to make the world a better place. The Paralympics in 2002, Team USA had arguably probably its strongest team ever, just strong and deep. Chris Waddell was a great example of that. But as you said, he's gone on to do really great things. Yeah, and he's actually a part of our committee here because we love having people that are so dedicated to uplifting both movements, Olympic and Paralympic. And Chris is just a dream to have on our team and has been an ambassador for us ever since 2002. So he's the 20-year anniversary is very much his as well. Fraser, one of the events that is a favorite to many, the medal ceremony. And you created this amazing medals plaza in a vacant lot in downtown Salt Lake City that really became the hub of activities over the 17 days of the Games. I just love medals plaza. In fact, I was scoping out sites this morning looking towards the future games. And what it does is it allows the celebration of the athletes who win their medals to be in front of a massive crowd specifically for the award of those medals. And we built a secondary cauldron. We had a magnificent stage. And then after the highlight of the athletes, then we had top-line music talent And Meadows Plaza really became the heart of downtown and, in a way, the heart of the games where you could have cultural celebrations, where you could have athlete celebrations, and you could have people coming together. Upwards of 20,000 people a night going to Meadows Plaza, it was great. Are there any particular memories you have, any athlete stories? Uh, You had an opportunity to meet some of these medalists? Well, let me start with one of the memories. It was bare naked ladies. And I did, I mean, I had to ask my kids, which groups did we want there? 
And they come out on stage, and I'm thinking, okay, that looked pretty interesting. But then they take off their outer clothing, and they have speed skating suits on underneath. And it was just so cool and so fun. The crowd went wild. It was so fun. And I was backstage and got to meet some of the athletes and performers. But for me, the highlight was really the men's snowboard halfpipe to seeing three American flags that were raised and then having our national anthem played and seeing those three wonderful snowboarders together under that national anthem was just a memory I'll never forget. Any organizational stories that you can remember, those odd circumstances where your team or your volunteers had to really come through at the, in a pinch? The nice thing about an organizing committee is you really empower, you train everybody, contingency planning, and every venue becomes like its own little city where they have somebody in charge. And so all the issues that come up typically stop at the general manager, and we were so well-trained, we knew we were going to do well. But things happen, and because there's so many moving elements, and one of them was our first day of competition at Snow Basin, the men's downhill on the first Sunday, there was a little miscommunication on the parking lots, and so Mitt ended up just jumping out of his car and directing traffic over to the right spot, and I said, go, Mitt, go. I mean, here's a guy that's fully invested. He's managing it at the highest levels, but he's not afraid to dive in wherever he's needed at the micro level. That was our team. We were invested. Whatever we needed to do, we would do. I was there that day, and it was just amazing. I said, that does look like Mint there with the, the traffic wand or whatever whatever he had. But it really was a team. I mean, all you guys worked together. It didn't matter what level you were at. It didn't. And, and we would go out of our way, Mint and I would, when we'd come to a venue, to just thank the volunteers and all of Team 2002. We we're so grateful for their hard work and their devotion, dedication. And they all had smiles on their faces. They loved every minute of it. The one aspect of the 2002 games that is nearest and dearest to me is the legacy that came out of that. And I want to tell my own story first because I came over here in 1988 with then the U.S. Ski Association. And we as an organization under Howard Peterson had really pushed the U.S. Olympic Committee to look at a site that would bring legacy. And legacy means carrying on the sports after the games. Salt Lake City truly figured that out, didn't they? Absolutely. And it starts with the people, people like Howard and yourself and others who have great vision. And then it's enabled by economics. We were fortunate to blow the doors off of our economic plan and end up with a surplus of about $100 million, $76 million of which went to endow our legacy venues, because in way too many cities, the legacy venues, which typically need subsidies to operate, they go into disrepair or disuse. And in our case, they're thriving and alive today because we were able to lay that financial foundation. But then the team there has grown it and developed it to make it so much bigger and so much more successful than we ever dreamed. I want to go back in time, and then we're going to fast forward to today. But going back in time, and I know this was before you, Fraser, but some of these venues were built 10 years before the Games. And it really allowed the U.S. athletes to have an opportunity to train. But more than that, it really built community. The Utah Olympic Park, which was originally called the Bear Hollow Sports Park, that was online beginning in 1992, a full 10 years in advance. That's pretty rare among Olympic cities. 
Yes, it is. The early visionaries had to stick their necks out, and the legislature and governor as well, to divert a quarter cent uh, sales tax into funding those facilities. But what it did, it brought the community together to say, yeah, this is real. We're going to pursue these games. Number two, it showed the Olympic movement, both the USOC and the IOC, that we're in this. This is real. And I think it really also benefited the athletes that they could get early runs on our various venues like the sliding track and build up expertise. So it really served some big needs early on. Here's some statistics that are just astounding to me. And this is legacy at its finest. We have around 230 some Team USA athletes who are in Beijing for the Olympics coming up in February. Over half of Team USA has passed through Utah for training or competition in the last few years. A full third, a third of Team USA makes a training base here, lives here, grew up here, goes to school here. There are dozens of foreign Olympians who make Utah their home. This is legacy. It's legacy at its best because the athletes are the heart of the games. They're the top priority. And I kind of live a little bit vicariously through them because I like to pretend I'm an athlete, but I see what they do and I'm just amazed. But this legacy continues forward because now this next generation that is competing in Beijing, it's so exciting to read about their stories that they're the kid that grew up down the block. That's amazing. But then it also lays the foundation into a potential future games of can we continue that legacy or even better, expand that legacy. Yeah, to me, I see it every day here being involved in sport, and it just is so gratifying, so gratifying to me. The other thing that's happened over time is so many events being held here, across, and, and now summer events as well as winter events, but Utah really has become the state of sport. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, my hat's off to Jeff Robbins and the Utah Sport Commission in terms of what they've done in hosting events, that we have become a year-round destination for all kinds of events at all levels, all the way from the easy levels to World Cups. And I think on the World Cup front and big international events, just on the winter side, it's over 150. So this keeps us relevant in the Olympic world. It allows our local athletes to be able to have some home field competitions. So we really, I think, are a shining star in the Olympic and Paralympic movements. As we look forward, Salt Lake City, Utah, is very deeply involved. It is now America's choice for a future games. The next step is trying to bring one of those games back to Utah, hopefully as soon as 2030. Yes, and we're hard at work. We've got an organization fully formed. Most of us are volunteers, which is the spirit of the games. And we have a fully formed board, which is comprised of political leaders, business leaders. Almost a third are athletes because we want to continue to have that athlete's voice. We're in the midst of putting a plan together for a future games. A lot of it's done, but we are the choice of the USOPC for future games. Now we just need the IOC to select us. We think 2022 will be a very big year. Number one, we'll determine which games we're pursuing. Ideally, 2030, if we can make all the pieces come together to work for that. But regardless of which year, we'll be pushing hard very much this year. And we think the second half of the year will have a lot of interesting activity. 
your organization has been very forward with the concept of athletes first. You organized a board this past summer with Catherine Rainey Norman, a four-time Olympic speed skater as the chair, and a strong focus on, on athletes. That would seem to be something that would be commonplace, but it isn't necessarily the case. And it's something I know that you as the leader have really driven that we have to be athletes first. We do. They are the heart of the games. They make everything possible. They are the example we aspire to achieve like they do. And having Catherine as our chair speaks volumes. She's an absolutely incredible person with superb talent and, and skills. And I, I just love working with her. We have Chris Waddell on our executive committee as an athlete. And we talk to these athletes and we say, what can we do to make the games experience better for not only the athletes, but also the athletes' families and their friends and things like that? So we want to do something really, really special when we host the games again. All of the venues from 2002 remain active, updated, and ready to go. But the one that's really fascinating to me is the Athlete Village and the concept of the Athlete Village that Utah is able to do because of the proximity of the venues and the relationship that you have with the University of Utah. The University of Utah is such a great partner. They were in 2002. I remember working with Bernie Matchin, the president, and, and anything we needed, we could get done. The same thing is true today with Taylor Randall. We just have a wonderful partnership and with the people there, that will be our village. And what's unique about it, because our games are so compact where all the venues are within a one-hour drive, we can have all the athletes together. That's not the experience they find themselves in games after games that we're seeing right now. And if we really put athletes first, having them be together to get to know each other and celebrate their accomplishments is very, very important to us. So we're so excited. And what they've done at the Village or at the University of Utah, it's grown, it's expanded. The facilities are just mind-blowing. The athletes will have an incredible experience at that Village. Back in the 90s when Salt Lake City was pursuing first the 98 games and the 2002 games, there was a very, very, I'll call it onerous process to bid, and there were intense timelines to meet and a fairly expensive process. The IOC has gone to a more organic approach to try to mitigate some of the challenges of the past, but it also leaves you without really knowing exactly when that decision will be made. Yeah, but I'll take that any day because the prior process was so competitive and you'd end up with one winner and several losers and you'd spend a fortune. Chicago spent over a hundred million dollars in bidding for the 2016 games. Our budget is 3.8 million and we may have money left over because the new process, it's a collaboration. It is a partnership and they call it a dialogue process with the IOC. We're in, in that dialogue process and it does feel like a partnership. And as a result of that, we don't have to spend near the money. We can be equally effective, but there is uncertainty around when the games will be awarded. But I don't think they'll let it go beyond what the normal time frame would be, which was seven years out. So that leaves us about a year and a half window when these games should be awarded for 2030. And I know that just in conversations with you that you're certainly aware of the other competitors, but really your focus is not so much on them. It's on what you're doing here. 
Yes, and I have the philosophy of cheering on any city that's willing to step forward in this important Olympic movement. So when I hear their names, I'm saying, good for you, and we wish you the very best. We want the IOC to make the best selection, and we think that we are a marvelous selection because of all of the things that we do that line up completely with the direction of the IOC under Agenda 2020 and the new norm. We really live and breathe that but we are focused on what we're doing here. Fraser, the Beijing Games will open up on Friday, February 4th. NBC will be there to cover the action. You have a busy schedule of 20th anniversary activities coming up over the next few weeks. But as you watch the Games, what are the things you're going to look for out of Beijing, both as an aficionado of the Olympics yourself and also as a future organizer? Well, the first thing I look for is the stories of the athletes. Those are so fun and so engaging because you're never sure what's going to emerge, what's going to happen. And so as a a fan of the athletes in the Olympics, that's where I always start. But then the other things I look at, and, and a lot of this will come behind the scenes, I will find out from the people who are there on the ground, what's working behind the scenes? What makes this venue particularly special for the athletes? What conditions there? What about perimeters? What about logistics and transportation? Find out everything behind the scenes and what Beijing has maybe done differently to lift the games to a new level, to innovate them. We're all over that. And a lot of that will be in video and telecom and things like that that we'll try to understand so that when our games come around, we can share the experience of the games to the world in the best and most technologically advanced fashion. You know, to that point, and this is just a little bit of a personal philosophy of mine, I know that we're all caught up in the issues there that have been so much in the forefront, the the situation with COVID, which is a real challenge. But set that all aside, it's the Olympic Games. It's athletes coming together. And I personally enjoyed this week to talk to athletes who are on their way. They're excited. They should be because they don't know what's going to happen. They get to stand in front of the world and What's interesting before every Games, there's always this issue and that issue. But when the Games start and that first athlete competes, everything changes. It becomes about them. And that's what we'll get to in just a short period of time. And all this other information and discussion will fade to the background. Well, Fraser Bullock, thank you for, number one, taking us back in time to 2002 and also for fast-forwarding out to what we hope will be the return of the games here in 2030. And we're going to move in now to our fresh track section to close off this episode of Last Chair and just a few fun questions. But I know you have a place up in Park City, but do you have a very special favorite ski run in Utah that you just really love? Well, I have many, but I'll point to one, which is Mercury on Iron Mountain at Park City Mountain Resort on the canyon side. When it's freshly groomed and you're the first one there and have the sunshine on your shoulders in the back and you can see the the snow flaring from your turns and and you really dial it in and and there's nobody else on the hill so you can go to higher speeds. My wife did put a speed limit on me of 60. Of 60. Yeah, I respect that because I frequently exceeded that and she got after me. But... Flying down that hill, Mercury, and feeling that fresh snow first thing in the morning is just as good as it gets. I got to go back to the speed thing, though. Are you using a ski tracker? Yes. What do you use? 
I use ski tracks. You do. And how does your wife know that you went 60 miles an hour? Do you go home and brag? I used to. <laughs> you don't do that. You yeah. Know? I, I had one time where I got over 70 in the high 70s. And she said, that's it. That's when she put on the speed limit, which I'm grateful to her now because I'll probably live a little bit longer because of that wise imposition of a speed limit. Canyons patrol. Don't worry about this. It's <laughs> under control. Here's a question I actually haven't asked guests in a while, but it's always a fun one. Groomers, glades, moguls, or powder? Oh, that's so hard. And it's changed in my my age. I used to do bumps anytime I could find them, but now my legs are a little bit less ambitious, so I can do a few moguls for a while. But I've come to really love groomers, and I've really become a fan of carving and seeing how high I can get my edge angles to the extent that I actually bought a ski simulator and put it in my basement that actually tests and you can measure your edge angles. And so I just like laying out on the hill and getting down low. I'll put that equal, well, maybe even a little bit ahead of powder. But powder, when you've got that glorious day of untracked powder, there's just nothing like it and you get the headshot. So those two are kind of neck and neck. When you're laying your edges over, are you thinking like, I look like Ted Ligety? Well, yeah, I thought that until I skied with Ted. And he skied with my ski group. And I said, Ted, go down ahead of me. I want to watch your form. And I'm a fast skier, but oh my gosh, he just took off. And he was turning a lot. And I said, this is a different world. So I, I now can place myself relative to Ted. And it's a long ways down. Yeah, it, it, it is nice to think about, though. We've talked about a lot of memories from 2002. But do you have one notable memory, that one that is just like always in the forefront of your mind? I would say that at the end of closing ceremonies, oh boy, Mitt and I and our wives and the governor and his wife went on the top of Rice Stadium so we could see these massive fireworks that we'd spent all this money on. And I remember standing there and looking at Mitt and just saying, we did it. And it wasn't us, it was Team 2002, which included the athletes. But just that sigh of relief of not only did it all work, it was spectacular. Everything came together. The number of medals for U.S., 34 when the high was 13 before. The weather, the operations, the stories of the games, it all came together. And just that feeling of satisfaction that we did our small part to help all of this happen. Fraser, final question as you think back in one word. How would you describe what the Olympics mean to Utah? Unity. I love it. Tell me about it. Well, when you go downtown or Park City and you're on Main Street in Park City or you're down at Meadows Plaza and you see thousands and thousands of people all engaged and big smiles on their face, nobody was thinking about political divides or any of those issues or anything like that. They're thinking about being a friend reaching out in kindness to people around them, big smiles on their faces, welcoming people from around the world. Utah showed its best, was completely unified from every angle, and showed that unity to the world to help the world become even more unified. Unity. Fraser Bullock, thanks for joining us, and let's bring those games back to America in 2030. I'm working as hard as I can.
Wasn't that fun to look back in time? I know having been here in the 2002 Olympics uh, some 20 years ago now, it is just great to relive those memories. And pretty good chance we'll be able to get those games back to America here in 2030. Big thanks to Fraser Bullock for joining us on Last Chair. As a passionate Four Seasons outdoor enthusiast myself, I know the value of a good shop where pros can help guide your purchasing decision. In my 30-plus years living here in Utah, I've come to really respect Jan's Mountain Outfitters up here in Park City. It's been the shop in Park City since 1980, and that goes for Jan's sister shop, White Pine Touring. Since the day that Jan opened the store, it's been staffed by knowledgeable experts, and today, over 500 combined years of experience in their fields. The Jans team will ensure that you are properly outfitted for your next mountain adventure, whether that's skiing, riding, cycling, hiking, fly fishing, or whatever adventure you're embarking on. Looking for a new pair of skis? Each season, the Jan staff tests over 100 pairs of skis to learn about each one firsthand. Ask about Jan's Try It Before You Buy It program as well. Do you need rental gear, including clothing? This is an area where Jan's really shines. You can rent from the shop that sells the best. You know, there's many places in town that you can get your skis and boards tuned. But to me, the experienced World Cup pros at Renstall make it the best spot to get a simple tune or a World Cup level prep. I just dropped a pair of skis off there this morning at Deer Valley. I could go on and on from boot fitting to guided fly fishing trips out to the Weber and Provo rivers. But when you're in town here in Park City, stop by one of Jan's shops and check them out in advance at jans.com. That's jans.com. Jans, your mountain recreation experts. The Ski Utah Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery. Follow our whiskey adventure on all social media platforms at Drink High West. And remember, sip responsibly. High West Whiskey, 46% alcohol by volume. High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. Thank you for joining us on Last Chair. We'll be back soon with more episodes. And we have some great ones coming up through February. Next up, we'll explore the Olympics again, but this time with an interview episode featuring Utah-based athletes competing in Beijing. And then later this month, we'll have noted ski photographer Lee Cohen, who will talk about his days as a ski bum here in Utah and how he became one of the most respected photographers along the Wasatch. Thanks for listening today to Last Chair, and please remember to subscribe to have every episode delivered direct to you. I'm Tom Kelly for Last Chair, presented by High West. Have fun. It is a great day to ski. Ski.